Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known When I was young and dreamed of glory You have no control Who lives, who dies, who tells your story President Jefferson, I'll give him this His financial system is a work of genius I couldn't undo it if I tried And I've tried Who lives, who dies, who tells your story President Madison, he took our country from bankruptcy to prosperity hate to admit it, but he doesn't get enough credit for all the credit he gave us. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Every other founding father's story gets told. Every other founding father gets to grow old. And when you're gone, who remembers your name? Who keeps your flame? Who tells your story? Who tells your story? Who tells your story? Well, you know what that's from. And I think it's one of the really big questions uh, in the book that we're going to talk about today uh, and the interbraided stories that we're going to talk about today. Um, There are many, many other pressing questions, um, none of them having to do with the uh, setting up of the federal bank system. Uh, This book, Genealogy of a Murder by Lisa Belkin, is kind of an interesting companion piece. If you listen to our show regularly, you might remember that last week, We did a show that had started weeks before with a call from Jenny Strauss, uh, who identified herself as the great-granddaughter of the the historical figure played by Robert Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer. And Jenny had been thinking and talking with her family very much about what that legacy means now and how, as citizens of the world, they should incorporate some of the less flattering aspects uh, of it into their understanding of themselves. Uh, And that led us to Maude Newton, who'd written a book about a similar question. Lisa Belkin has written a book that is sort of the perfect companion to this in a way. Uh, It's... uh, Well, I'm going to let her tell you what it is. Why should I be telling you what it is? Lisa Belkin joins us now, journalist and the author of narrative nonfiction books, including Show Me a Hero. You may remember the HBO miniseries. uh, And most recently, as I said, Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. She's been a reporter at The New York Times for more than 25 years. Lisa Belkin, welcome to our conversation. So great to be here. Now, I should tell you that I just cried hearing that song because <laughs> that song makes me cry. and I didn't expect it. Yeah, it, it, that, that was in my head um, and, and often in my ear buds when I was writing. That's so, our, yes. our goal. We're very manipulative here. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, within the world of crime, nonfiction and fiction, there's sort of these two categories, the whodunit and the how catch them. How catch them is like Columbo. You already know who did it. How are they going to? And you've almost invented a new genre here. I think it's called the why happen uh, or, or something along those lines. And, and maybe we just begin at what was for you the beginning. This story begins, as so many great stories do, over poached decade, uh, duck eggs with uh, one's uh, aging mother and her uh, aging new, fairly new husband who wants to tell you a story. He wants to get to know you better. Uh, he's approaching 90. He wants to get to know his stepdaughter better. He's read some of her work. And he tells you a story that starts you down this path that's going to involve years of research and years of writing, uh, all become because of a 45-minute story. What does he tell you? 
Yeah, he 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 took his time. Um, Al Al tells stories slowly and deliberately. He does kind of everything slowly and deliberately. And it was a story from his life. He was a young doctor and he was 30 years old in 1960. And he was stationed, he was an army sergeant um, stationed at the Stateville Penitentiary in Chicago, Illinois, where he was a physician researcher running the Stateville Army Malaria drug trials. Basically, they were experimenting on prisoners. And that is a one of the many questions about what is right and what is wrong in the book. But his job, the Army's goal, was to find a way to protect troops from malaria. It had started during World War II. It continued during Korea. Um, Vietnam was looming, and Al was there to continue this frantic search to, to fight back malaria, which had decimated American troops. And, you know, there's a pendulum in um, penal reform, and it swings from we are going to change them to we are going to punish them. And it was very much in the the change them, rehabilitate them camp when Al was there. So not only were prisoners the subjects of this drug trial research, but they were also hired as nurses, as lab techs, as researchers. They were being trained for jobs they could do outside the penitentiary. And Al became friendly with one particular prisoner, a man named Joseph DeSalvo. And was it a real friendship? That's another question of, of the, that I explore. Can you truly be friends in these conditions where one man goes home to his family at the end of the day and the other goes off to his jail cell in shackles? But it felt like friendship, at least to Al. And this man was brilliant. Um, he spent all of his spare time in his cell reading deeply the sorts of things that my stepfather was also very interested in, and they developed this relationship. So when Joe DeSalvo asked Al for help with the parole board, Al researched parole, determined that it was more than just the letter to the parole board that Joe was asking for that made someone successful, um, but it was also having a job when you get out, having um, a place to live, in getting out of the water you swim in. So Al got at Joe all those things in Norwalk, Connecticut, which is where Al, my stepfather, grew up and did his own time as a, a lab tech researcher at the Norwalk Hospital. And so using those connections, he found Joe all those things. And to make a very long story a little bit shorter, um, Joe did very well for a short period of time, and then things went very badly, and the result was a police officer was killed. And Al told me this story, and it took 45 minutes, and the duck eggs got cold. <laughs> and I looked at him afterwards, and I said, you know I have to write about this, don't you? And he said, well, if you must. And I spent the next almost decade sort of parsing apart the threads of this and weaving them back together. And the result is genealogy of a murder. 
And, and there's so much to unpack here, and we're not going to be able to do that. And um, I will say that uh, I don't think there's a danger of spoiling things very much by talking about them. We certainly start uh, with the end. We start with what happened. You know, but I've, I feel as though as we go through this particular show that your stepfather is kind of a remarkable person in the sense that an awful lot of people – having turned this over in their minds. And the book actually begins with him sitting on a beach with his then wife uh, and, and having a beach in Madison, Connecticut, and, and, and having a sense, an uneasy sense, uh, a sense that will come to grow that maybe he has some connection to some news reports that are coming out about this shooting in Stanford. A lot of people having made what could be called a pretty serious error, error in judgment or just being too trusting or however we want to parse that, uh, but one that does, does lead to the death of a young police officer, you know, a lot of people would just leave that undisturbed, right? <laughs> a lot of us would go, well, we'll never know. I'm going get, to get on with my life. The fact that decades later he's still thinking about this and really kind of willing to help you um, walk down this complicated path, that, that says something about his introspection or maybe just at, at end, near end of life, maybe we're more open to that. I've asked him over the years since why he told me that story. I have always seen it as a confession of sorts, a a reckoning for himself. He would never use those words to describe it, but he clearly sat and very deliberately told some very, um, if not incriminating, because that's much more a legal term, but some actions he regrets. Um, And it was a story of his regret. And he told it to someone whose books he had just read, whose articles he followed. He knew I did this for a living. So yes, I think that it was an unburdening of sorts. And he was, he did not flinch in any question I asked going forward. Um, So yeah, I, I think that this was a story that he had not told to family. Um, my mother knew the basic outlines and she was married to him. Um, it just sort of bubbled up one day and he handed it to me and said, okay, now now you go yeah. take this. Now, one of the choices that you made, it's, it's one of the very remarkable choices you made. I mean, if you just told the story of these three men, your stepfather, Joseph DeSalvo, and David Troy, uh, you'd have a really good story. I think a really pretty interesting story. Just be following them through their whole lives leading up to this moment. That apparently was not enough. Uh, You needed to know about their parents, their grandparents, and in some cases, their great-grandparents. This book, uh, which culminates with with this uh, shooting in 1960, uh, starts, I think, around sometime around 1906. Uh, with a train crash. Uh, And so explain that. There's a way in which I think this book is kind of asking the Brutus Cassius question, you know, the fault lies not in our stars, but in ourselves. Um, This is asking a lot of those same kinds of questions. How do people get to be where they are? Uh, What role does coincidence play? What role does something we might even call fate play? I'm hardly the first person to be fascinated by these, right? <laughs> all all of, of, of history and philosophy and religion are in many ways based on this. This is the foundation of, of our questions about what role we play in the universe. And 
you know, couples go on first dates with other couples, right? You're sitting around, you're meeting each other, and it's always, well, how did you meet? And the story almost always involves a near miss, right? We are fascinated by the near misses of our life. If that hadn't happened, then that wouldn't have happened. And then none of this would have happened. And so I am endlessly fascinated by it. I, I've written about this before. Um, this was the longest thing I've ever written about it and the most in-depth. But it's, it's always a fascination of mine. Um, I think it's partly why I became a reporter is because I, I will start an interview with, okay, let's go back to the beginning. And I'm always interested in what someone thinks the beginning is. I did not start out thinking that the beginning of this story about 1960 was going to happen in 1906. That evolved. And to not sound woo-woo about it, but it was almost as though I wasn't making these decisions, but doors kept opening backwards to the past. You know, I, I started by checking Al's facts about what he the part he had described to me and he was a 90 year old man and his facts checked out um everything checkable his memory was right and so i widened from there i started asking him about you know his family history his life um and he went back to his grandfather in a train crash in 1906 so i followed him there and he started to find direct lines between that train crash in 1906. If that had not happened, arguably, without too much stretching of the imagination, you could say that this shooting might not have happened. And I begin to find these lines everywhere you look and it became almost like I would discover ancestors who had been sitting around for a hundred years, just waiting for me to show up because they knew they were connected to this story. And it's like, Lisa, what took you so long? And I followed all those threads. I became the crazy person with the murder board, you know? (laughs) But you didn't have one, right? You weren't Carrie Matheson. You didn't do the murder board. I do not actually have a murder board. I do have a cork board right next to me, which still has a photo of David Troy, um, the police officer, looking over my shoulder as a reminder that at its center, this was a story about this man and how he ended up being killed before he turned 30 years old. Right. You would have to rent a warehouse uh, with a big enough wall for the murder board for this story because it's just not even confined to one murder. There's more than one murder. There's so many intergenerational stories. But, Your Honor, I would like to enter into evidence a post-it in which the words woo-woo have been written in green Sharpie, which I did as Rose running out of the house uh, today to come here, and I stuck it to the cover of Genealogy of a Murder. So I I just want to go back to this for a second, too, because, you know— I don't know. I, we do a lot of these shows. We do a daily radio show, and we find that some of the episodes bleed into one another in a way that's a little creepy sometimes. You know, it's kind of like, what? What are we doing? How did this thing get back into, into our 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 viewfinder? Uh, and and that's got to be also true for you that you said that these people, you know, from a hundred years ago, are going. Well, Lisa, what took you so long? I've been waiting here to tell my story here in in some dusty archive. Um, I don't know. It, 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 the book that it most resembles in some ways is Cloud Atlas, Davis, David Mitchell's uh, uh, 
fictional treatment of kind of generational carryover. But did it, I don't know, did you find yourself having, in the broadest sense, supernatural thoughts about what's going on here? No, I never felt supernatural about it. I felt endlessly invigorated by the very real connections that if you take the time to find them are there in all of our lives. Um, I mean, the day Leopold and Loeb showed up as characters in my book um, was a spectacular day. And not because I have any great love of Leopold and Loeb, they give me the creeps, but here were these two men who, you know, they were the first murder of the century, a, a term that's used a remarkable number of times in the course of the century. I know I've Googled it. And yet had they, by, by brief recap, um, Leopold and Loeb were two University of Chicago students who felt they were brilliant enough that they could literally get away with murder. And to prove this, they randomly pulled a 14-year-old boy off the street and killed him. And uh, spoiler alert, they did not get away with murder. But the randomness of the act, the wealth of these two boys, the hubris um, came to define this generation in the 1920s. And everyone knew Leopold and Loeb. And I know all about Leopold and Loeb. I had read, you know, various stories about their crime when I was a kid. And suddenly I'm reading about this far less known work they did mostly to entertain themselves while they were serving 99 years to life in the Stateville Penitentiary. And they created, in effect, a, the field of parole prediction. Um, there are people who will object to saying they created it. It was, it was created at the University of Chicago by the very brand new field of sociology, but they objected to what those sociologists were doing because they said that the sociologists were just measuring, were looking at everything a man was before he got to prison when deciding whether or not he would be a good parole risk. And Leopold and Loeb argued that you needed to take into account the things that happened to that man in prison. I'm, going, I'm just going to jump in here and say that mm-hmm. we can provide you, uh, the listener, with actual audio of Nathan Leopold uh, talking about this, speaking to the press upon his eventual uh, and by him long awaited and struggled for release from Illinois State Penitentiary at Stateville. Uh, here is a one cat. Uh, this is Nathan Leopold. I have never heard this. I hope all of you feel that a third of a century spent in prison has been severe punishment and are happy to see me free. I hope you want to see me succeed, to see me vindicate the trust reposed in me. Don't then, I beg of you, add to that punishment. Don't make it impossible for me to succeed. So there's a way in which Leopold in particular, not so much mm-hmm. Loeb, but Leopold in particular becomes a comet in whose tail Joe uh, DeSalvo right, kind of rides. Leopold creates a measure of whether or not people should be able to succeed on parole. And that instrument is used to decide whether or not Joe DeSalvo gets paroled. And they decide his odds are relatively good. um, And they release him out into the world, largely into Al's orbit, if not Al's direct responsibility. 
Um, but it was because, you know, so if, if Leopold and Loeb had not killed Bobby Franks in 1924, it is arguably likely that Joseph DeSalvo would not have been released at the time and in the way that he was. There is one uh, holy cats, which is not the word I actually said, moment where even though Leopold and Joe DeSalvo don't really have a lot of direct contact, he does take a chest x-ray. I am not. I shouldn't be laughing at this because this is very serious and, and very tragic stuff, but it's just so weird. Here's Nathan Leopold, who just happens to be among the many things he learned how to do in his long stay in prison uh, is take x-rays and he's x-raying. Joseph DeSalvo, the person who, as you say, whose freedom he will, you know, unwittingly help obtain. And that was a lot of you know, the research challenge. That was partly why this book took nine years is you have to establish when did Joe DeSalvo get there. I had to FOIA his records while he was there. I established that he had a chest x-ray. And then separately, you go and research what Leopold was doing at any given time. And in fact, those paths crossed. Um, because that was how Leopold was spending his time at the moment that Joseph DeSalvo entered the prison. So, yes, that was the one interaction that we know about. It was not huge. It probably meant nothing to Leopold um, and probably meant very little to, to DeSalvo. Yeah. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, we're talking to Lisa Belkin. Uh, the book, the remarkable book, Gene Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. Later in the show, we are going to meet two of the um, descendants uh, of the man who was killed on that fateful night. Uh, his name was David Troy. He was a Stanford police officer. Uh, you'll meet uh, his daughter and granddaughter towards the end of the show. But right now, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Lisa right after this. One child grows up to be Somebody that just loves to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. Mom loves the both of them. You see it's in the blood. Both kids are good and wrong. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Struck. 
By lightning sounds pretty frightening, but you know the chances are so small. Stuck by beasting, nothing but a bee thing. Better chance you're gonna buy it at the mall. But it's a 23 or 4 to 1 that you can fall in love by the end of this song. So get up, get up, tell the bookie put a bet I'm not a damn thing will go wrong. The odds are that we will probably be alright. Odds are we gonna be so I had to pick that song because uh, we're with Lisa Belkin, a journalist and author uh, of narrative nonfiction books, including Show Me a Hero, uh, but uh, most recently, Genealogy of a Murder. Four generations, three families, one fateful night. This is the story of three men whose destinies kind of came together on that one night. Uh, one of them, a police, police officer who was tragically slain by another of the men, the third man, a doctor who had helped affect the, the parole uh, of the shooter. So... Um, Lisa Belkin, you're not in only all of those things, but the reason that I just played a song called Odds Are uh, is that you have a very famous magazine article from the past called The Odds of That. Um, and, and it really does seem to me that maybe one of the little seeds of this um, much larger project, this book, uh, sits way back there. I don't know, was it 20 years ago? It was kind of after 9-11, I think. Um, you sort of looked at that whole question, how cer- certain things seem to be very ominous coincidences but are, in fact, the product of other things. I don't know. Could you maybe talk about the relationship between that article uh, and this book? Well, um, you're, you're very astute. The, um, the working title of Genealogy of a Murder of this book was The Odds of That, which was, of course, the title of a 2002 article that is, is I can't pick favorites, like your children mm. but it is certainly one of of my favorite pieces because it does it explores exactly this um and it's in a way the antithesis of it it is look at all these things that look like they're connected and then when you look closely it is our brains it is what we are programmed to do we are programmed to see connections because we are so curious about what made things happen and how things are are meshed together that our brain fills in the blanks. So, you know, the, it it opens with a series of again. This was right after nine eleven, and then after the anthrax scares that followed nine eleven. Um, and it opens with the deaths of a number of people who are either biochemists or attached to biochemistry labs, and they were all slightly odd circumstances and the the rumor mill filled in the blanks and and said my god look someone is killing biochemists who are involved with anthrax research and so i parsed apart that one and a whole lot of other things that happened at around that time for the distance between what it could look like and what actually happened and without taking up the rest of the show with all of the details but not a single one of those biochemists were actually working with anthrax all of the circumstances of their deaths when you looked at them individually made real sense as opposed to being this random event that could only be the result of some large conspiracy Um, but it was a fascinating look at what we can convince ourselves to believe because as as one of the 
experts in this says that we are programmed that when we see spots out in the jungle, we think leopard because it's not safe to think anything else. Right. We're, we're a pattern-seeking animal, uh, and that's how we survived. Um, yeah, I think maybe the thing that, for me, unifies these two projects is actually not written by you, but by Don DeLillo in the novel Libra, uh, which is a fictional recounting of Lee Harvey Oswald and the Kennedy assassination. There's a character named Nicholas Branch, who's, I think, a CIA agent who's been given access to everything. He has everything in front of him. Uh, and at the end, as he's con- contemplating the meaning of all this, uh, Delilah writes about Branch. He has learned enough about the days and month proceedings, uh, days and months preceding November 22nd, and enough about the 22nd itself to reach a determination that the conspiracy against the president was a rambling affair that succeeded in the short term due mainly to chance, deft men and fools, ambivalence and fixed will, and what the weather was like. And, and there's a sense of that in genealogy of a murder too. You have. You have an awareness that, yes, if things, I mean, we're all accidents, you know, if if our mothers had had one more old-fashioned that night and fallen asleep earlier or something, you know, you just wouldn't have been had. Uh, and, and so we're all accidents to some degree, but I think we're uncomfortable with the level of chance and happenstance. I mean, this book is so fascinating because in, the one, in one sense, it's about policy. It's about penology and McCarthyism and all kinds of stuff. But it's also just about, you know, sort of sliding doors, right? It's very much sliding doors and butterfly effect, but it's also about how there are real lives affected by all decisions. So some of those decisions are the other Manhattan, but some of them are whether or not the um, soldiers who did not fight during um, the, the Korean War, but were stationed in places where, where there was not active fighting, whether they too qualified for the GI Bill. Because had they not, the lives of you know one particular character who was as likely to go off the rails in his life as Joseph DeSalvo um, didn't because the GI Bill came and allowed him to go to college. And so, you know, the two of them, these two characters are sort of parallel in this book. Um, the Joseph DeSalvo being one, the other being Dante Casentino, who will eventually become the police officer's brother-in-law. And he had as horrific a childhood as um, Joseph DeSalvo. He too was flirting with juvenile delinquency. He too went AWOL in the army. He, he could have ended up as DeSalvo did with a disastrous ending, but he didn't because of a decision made on a policy level far away from him that seemed to have nothing to do with him until it changed everything. And so Joseph DeSalvo became the killer of David Troy and Dante Costantino became a philosophy professor in California who still in his 90s has amazing conversations with me about philosophy, right? So, so it is about chance, but it's also about constantly being aware, at least, that decisions have consequences generations down the line. And we should know that as human beings. We should remember that. 
Right. I mean, this is really true in the area of penology, and we don't have time to go into all this, but your book does a really great job of just talking about not only the existing overarching policies, but the way policies are, policies are executed by different wardens and things like that has a huge effect. And in the case of Costantino, too, it's really interesting because, yes, absolutely, he's the product of this very good policy that opens up educational avenues. But there's also a lot of sliding doors. I don't know. There's a guy who picks him up hitchhiking, who says something about, you know, what you earn, they can take away from you, what they learn, what you learn, they can't take away from you. I think he's also the one, correct me if I'm wrong, who's in a class where the professor says the difference between, you know, a a tortfeasor, a wrongdoer, uh, and an upright citizen may be just who who took an interest in them when they were young. If somebody just cared about them for a a very short time, that that may have made a big difference. Right. And, you know, Dante had that um, when he was younger. A a do-gooder organization gave him a scholarship to public school, basically, so that he didn't have to keep being truant and go sell newspapers so that he could buy the things he wanted. They gave him the money to go buy the things he wanted. So he had that. He had that in his, if not DNA, then, then in his psyche. Um, you know, people always ask me, okay, so what's the takeaway? DeSalvo was in many ways doomed um, before he even began. He, and, and going back, you see his own father who, was, who came very, very, very close to the brass ring and becoming a, a motorcycle racing star that would have changed his entire life. And then he had a horrible crash, probably a traumatic brain injury, although no one had invented the term yet. It did, that changed his life, changed his personality, made him, you know, an abusive spouse and father. It happened before Joseph DeSalvo was born. Is it, did that make it inevitable that he was going to become who he became? Probably not, but it certainly made it more likely. And so, you know, the message you could get somewhat depressed, right? Here's this this shooter who maybe never had a chance. And I didn't like the moral of my own book for a very long time. And then I realized that, no, the lesson is that one person coming along in the lives of all of these people can dramatically change their trajectory. So maybe it's as simple as I want to try and be that person for someone else. We need to try to be that person. Oh, there's one last thing I want to ask you about in this segment, and then I, I want to get us to the, the family of David Troy. But I mean, this is a history book. Um, you're a journalist who's now written what is, I think, indisputably a history book. And it's a kind of living history book. The story of immigration in particular, I think, is told incredibly effectively or early 20th century immigration patterns and and how that could play out in personal lives. And this is, as I was reading this book, I was thinking about that scene in the Robert Gottlieb, Robert DeCaro documentary uh, where, where Carol, excuse me, where Carol's, Carol and his wife are in some archives uh, down in Texas, some LBJ archives. And he says, this is the best feeling in the world just coming in here every day and just getting a big stack of stuff that I got to go through. And, I, and I, I'm sitting there thinking, I would take my own life. Uh, I would not be able to do this. Uh, I do a daily radio show and I raise newspaper columns for a reason. I'm kind of fast twitch. This is the effort here, the research effort here, the finding of the yellowed piece of paper with Bridget Riley's name and some notation after it and some 
dusty archive somewhere. This is pretty incredible. Could you just talk a little bit about what this, I don't know, pulled out of you as a writer and researcher? I was a journalist for 30 some odd years when I started this book. And it was, I was very much about what happened yesterday um, and, and how will it affect tomorrow. And then I fell into this story. I did not think of myself as a history writer and found that I was absolutely mesmerized by the past. And, you know, I knew the, the saying, um, those who don't know the past are condemned to repeat it. But it, it took on a, a larger um, presence in my life. And then um, 2020 happened. And I was writing the, the last third of the book um, and revising the, the earlier research that I had. And I called my husband one day and I said, I'm writing about 1918. 1918 was a horrific year. Mm-hmm. It was, more people died from the, the flu pandemic than died from the war. Um, and an awful lot of people died from the war. And yet, I said, I would rather be back in 1918 because I know how it ends. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how this chaos ends. And it, what came away to get me through the pandemic was to, to stay back where we know the ending and to try and make some sense of the lessons learned from that um, to do better this go around. Um, not sure I accomplished that with this book, but um, I think you may have. I, I think you may have. I mean, it's it's not like hitting you in the face like a wet mackerel. You have to read and think to get some of the messages here. But I, I think that they are here. I will say that the quote that kept ringing through my mind reading this was not the Santayana one you just referenced, but Faulkner's "The past is never dead; it's not even past." Um, and I think that's very mm-hmm. true in this story. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Lisa Belkin will be back. So will the family, two family members uh, of David Troy, the policeman in Stanford who was killed in 1960. And the technical producer today, as is the case most days, is Cat Pastor. Um, and in fact, the great one has come back to do this, our uh, senior producer emeritus, uh, Bitsy Kaplan. The only person I could imagine producing this episode is the producer of this episode uh, with Lisa Belkin and her book, Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. Uh, Lisa's still with us. Joining us now also is Doreen Troy Dolan, who is David Troy's daughter. David Troy was the Stanford policeman who was murdered in 1960. She currently lives in Rhode Island. Kelsey Rose Dolan is David Troy's granddaughter. She also lives in Rhode Island. Um, So, Doreen, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for doing this. It it can't be not painful uh, to have to turn these stories over and over in your head. And I guess maybe I'd like to begin by saying, because of the way Lisa Belkin did this, 
you meet your parents in a way that few of us do. You meet your parents as children uh, and, and kind of hear or experience through reading both of their life stories. What was that like? I mean, that in itself must have been kind of a, an amazing experience. It, it filled in a lot of holes for for me and my my sisters and brother. We had uh, you know we hadn't heard much. My my mother was not much for you know telling a lot of family history or anything like that. I mean, not only the history of my mom and my and my dad, but also the history of my grandmother and my grandfather. Um, you know, it's it was a it was a history of, of both fam of both families, but the generations back too. You know, I know from reading Lisa's book that this whole thing begins with her sending a Facebook message to the family. Were you the recipient of that Facebook message? Yes, I was. And and <laughs> and you could have said, "Just get out of my life, go away, Lisa Belkin." So why didn't you? And do you remember sort of the thinking among the family members about their relationship to this idea for this project? It, I had said to Lisa when, when I first spoke with her that it was really impeccable timing because uh, my mother had just uh, passed away a few years back and my children were starting to ask questions about my mother and father and my family history and neither I nor my sister nor my brother had any answers uh, to their questions. So it was pretty opportune that Lisa came along and was able to fill in a lot of blanks. So you're, I believe, four years old when when this uh, horrible thing happens. Uh, I don't know how many things I remember from the age of four. I suppose something this traumatic would be the thing that you do remember. Do you do you have any latent memories of that time? I there are memories. Um, the only memory I really have of my five two memories that I can think of that I have of my father uh, being at a parade and watching him uh, ride away on his motorcycle. He was, uh, you know, one of the policemen in the parade. I remember that. And then I remember being, a, you know, like a hot summer day sitting in a bathtub and him giving me a half a popsicle. The other things that I remember have to do with, you know, after he after he passed away, like I remember you know the you know the ribbons and flowers they put on on the graves afterwards. I think we must have taken some of them home, and I remember them being on the floor in my closet in my bedroom. Um, just you know, little blurb things like that. You um, you remember, mm. you know. So Kelsey, I know you and other family members read this book before we did. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, you read this book plus seventy thousand words. Uh, that were cut from the book. Um, so you read a longer book. Um, and I, I guess, once again, I'm going to ask you a similar question. Um, just what's that like to see everything that led up to your own life laid out like that, almost as a, a, a board that pieces are being moved around on? Um, it's pretty interesting, I guess, because you like never think that back far, that far back in your life. Um, and there's a lot of questions that my mom has never known. So it's nice to see a family history come alive. I mean, it could be healing or it could be the opposite of healing. I don't know. Do you have a sort of sense of what it has been like to be so immersed in a story that leads up to this just really kind of primal family tragedy? Um, I feel like my mom would have more of the emotional side put into that because I've just always known my life without my grandfather in it. 
Like we were never even on earth at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of always, I've always known him as never being there. Yeah. So, um, so I want to ask both of you uh, a question that I think is sort of awkward, but I think also inevitable. And Doreen, I'll, I'll come back to you on this. Uh, I know at the end of the book, there is a moment when um, when Lisa, I think she brings her stepfather, Al Tarloff, to, uh, to meet with uh, the family. Uh, and, you know, we, we talked about this at the beginning of the show. This is Al Tarloff, who is wrestling with and, and eager to find some way of thinking about or tell the story of um, a decision he made that was unwittingly a decision that had um, unforeseen and very, very tragic consequences for your family. Um, Dorian, could you maybe talk about meeting him and how you felt about that? I mean, it, it's it's obviously there that if he had handled things differently, uh, your your father wouldn't have been shot. I don't know how that felt for you, though. Well, I don't, you know, there was an intent there. He was, he didn't intentionally do something, um, you know, negative. His intentions were, were I think, very sincere and, and good. Uh, it's unfortunate that it turned out the way it did, I think. I don't think that, I mean, yes, you could say if he intentionally or if he, um, you know, through lack of negligence or something like that but i don't i don't feel that that's happened and i would hope that when he met us he would at least feel a little bit of uh of relief that you know we our lives are okay you know we all turned out okay you know the the doreen also one of the um i mean so there's so many characters in this book uh and and one of them uh, is a woman named Bridget riley uh who um is uh, I'm trying to trying to get the relationship straight in my head, but she is not a particularly welcoming person uh, to uh, to your father from the time he's born, right? She doesn't seem to really not to my father. No, she's she was my granny. She was my father's mother. Got it. Okay, I I, I got moment. I got moment. Your father's mother. Your father's mother. Yeah. Granny. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, so, yeah. so yeah. Talk a little bit about how that figure kind of. Um, I mean, she, she seems to be. I don't know. It's even hard to describe it, but there, there, there's a way in which she's not entirely charitable. We, you know, I don't have a lot of memories of her. We didn't grow up with the Troy family, really. We, you know, when shortly after my father was killed, we had um, my mother uh, moved us out to the West Coast. So I don't have a lot of memories of her. I remember seeing her. Uh, she she and her, you know, a couple of my uncles came out to visit once in when we were living in California. And then, you know, I had met her once uh, just after graduating high school when I had come back here. So I don't, I don't really know too much about her. I just know more about her through, uh, you know, things that I've heard, the little that I heard from my mother and some of the stuff that I've heard from, from aunts and uncles type of thing. Right. And, you know, I mean, another quick question for you, Kelsey, and then I want to go back to Lisa to wrap things up here. But, um, you know, in a way, I think maybe also reading a story told like this uh, about a very young man, you know, a young man who doesn't live to the age of 30, who's shot down while doing his job. That's got to be an interesting pill to swallow or a thing to digest, uh, just to think of the life that he didn't get to uh, lead as you contemplate even your own life. Yeah, actually, I brought this up a while back, but um, when Lisa sent that Facebook message to my mom, 
me and my family, my brothers and sisters, and uh, we started talking about it. And my older brother had mentioned at the time that, he, well, this was 10 years ago. So he was 26 at the time. And he was like, well, so he was my age right now when he passed away, which is pretty crazy to think about because my brother, like, I mean, he was doing well for himself, but he definitely wasn't married with three kids. Mm -hmm. So it was, to put it in that perspective, it's like, it's barely like a life. And I'm, I'm 34 now, so I've already outlived him. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's crazy to think about, but he did leave behind so much because we're all here because of him. Yet he wasn't here for very long. Right. One of the really fascinating things, Lisa, about your book, and by the way, uh, both Dorian and Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, one of the things that you sort of need to dog ear or bookmark in this book is a family tree or actually four different family trees so you don't make mistakes like the one I just made. But also, you kind of, Lisa, get a sense, too, uh, of what Kelsey just said. You know, how many people are here because one person or two people were there. And, and, and maybe as we wrap up here, there's a way in which I think we like to think we have control over our lives. And there's a way in which this book suggests that we have control over some of our lives, but maybe not as much as we think we do. It shows us what we are all the product of. Uh, we could write this book about any three people, right? I could write it about you and I and, and your wonderful producer and how we all ended up on this show at this moment. Um, there probably wouldn't be a murder, but it would, we all have a story that brought us to where we are and as who we are. And, and when you go backwards and parse it out, you get a sense of all the things that had to have happened for any of us to be where we are. I find it both overwhelming and, and exhilarating to think about that way, that we just are a part of history and even as we are created by it we are changing it and if you just stop once in a while and take a look as i got a chance to do it's um it's sobering but oddly reassuring well listen uh, betsy kaplan and i will set up a time to meet with you um <laughs> good, good good luck with my parents they refuse to even tell me how they met or when they met. Uh, so, you know, set aside another 10 years for this. But meanwhile... That means there's a good story. The, I, I'm afraid it does, yes. Uh, Lisa Belkin, a wonderful book, Genealogy of a Murder, Four Generations, Three Families, One Fateful Night. It'll change the way you look at the world, at least, you know, in the immediate aftermath of reading it. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Take it over. Try to put yourself in my unique position. If I